Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Uh, There's no question that uh, being a B-class Palestinian is better than being a C-class Palestinian. So whilst you're a B-class Palestinian in uh, Israel with that citizenship, which means you can travel to America now on a visa waiver program, it means you can have a job. It does also mean you're very careful about speaking Arabic. It does mean you give your children ambiguous names like Amir that are both Hebrew and Arabic. Um, You try and steer away from names like Hamid. And as you know, Mike, having been there, the majority of Israeli Jews are in fact Sephardic. They're not Ashkenazi. They look like me. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose and part two of our local discussion on the current Middle East conflict in Israel and the Palestinian territories. First off, a big thank you to our season sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. Before we kick off today, a content warning that this episode deals with some troubling themes around the current conflict in Israel and the Palestinian territories, as well as descriptions of historical and current violent acts. This one is not suitable for kids. Last week, as part one of our short series, we heard from Joel Burney, who is Executive Director at AJAC, which stands for the Australia, Israel and Jewish Affairs Committee. This week in part two, we'll hear an important alternative perspective on the current conflict from Nasser Mashni, who is the president of APAN, which stands for the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. APAN harnesses the passion of Australians to advocate for Australian policy to support Palestinian human rights, justice and equality. NASA has had a really busy and challenging period, and I'm so grateful that he could make the time to speak with me. He was a terrific guest who I very much enjoyed hosting, and throughout this conversation, you'll hear differences in our views on the history of Israel and the Palestinian territories, the motivations between both sides, and some of the facts of the recent conflict and historical facts too. NASA also shares some interesting and insightful views on the Australian government response to the conflict and the opposition too, some of the protests and rallies here, their impact and the challenges that Palestinians and Muslims are facing in Australia too as a result of the recent conflict. What I'm most proud of in this podcast is that we're able to have a very respectful, productive and tolerant conversation where we could agree to disagree on certain topics and points, but also listen and develop an understanding of each other's views on key topics. As Gandhi once put it, honest disagreement is often a sign of good progress. As per our position on this series followed in part one and in all Humans of Purpose podcasts, this podcast is entirely unedited for content and we trust you as a mature listener with the appropriate warnings to exercise your own judgment and discretion as to how to interpret what you'll hear in this conversation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with NASA as much as I did. NASA, I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on Humans of Purpose. Pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Very difficult time. Um, we're going to get to everything, uh, but I think um, in, in the usual fashion before we kick off, we'd love to learn a little bit about your background, your history, uh, work, career, identity, and a little bit about your connection to Palestine and advocacy too. 
Uh, it's a big question, so feel free to pull it apart and process as need be. Yeah, fantastic, Mike. Well, firstly, you know, I'm an, I'm an accidental Australian. Uh, you know, my my roots and my you know forefathers' land and connection is to to Palestine as it was then uh, to Jerusalem. You know, in our village, we can see six headstones and and a seventh vaguely of my forefathers. Um, when Israel was created, as you know, uh, or formally constituted in 1948, recognised a state by the United Nations, um, it, it, it something ceased to exist, and that was uh, Palestine or the mandate of Palestine. After World War One, when everybody got a country, you know, Lawrence of Arabia came along and said to the Arabs, "Fight with us against the Turks, and you know, we'll give you your independence." After uh, 400 years of Turkish um, uh, occupation, the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Arabs uh, fought with with Lawrence and the British, and if you go to any World War One memorial, you'll see, you know, El Alamein, Gallipoli. You'll see Palestine. Uh, you'll see that at the shrine, and you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, that's a historical fact. You know, whether it be at the Australian War Museum or otherwise. Um, my father was born in the twenties. Uh, he grew up in a magical Jerusalem. Uh, I say that because until his dying breath, uh, you know, he still dreamed of that Jerusalem being recaptured. And that was a Jerusalem where, you know, uh, Avraham, Ibrahim, and Abraham, um, uh, Hebrew, English, and Arabic for the father of the three monotheistic religions, uh, played marbles together Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And on Friday, uh, Ibrahim went to mosque. On Saturday, Avraham went to temple. And on Sunday, Abraham went to church. And uh, Mike, I know, I know you, you've been to, to Palestine, Israel, and you'll know, you know how close the wailing wall is to the dome of the rock mm. uh so that you know the last remnants of the last uh jewish temple the dome of the rock where uh, muslims believe the prophet muhammad ascended to heaven uh and the church of the holy sepulchre where uh christians believe um jesus was crucified that if you drew a line there as a crow flies you're two or three hundred meters you know it's such a uh, such a tiny little bit of dirt with so much history that um, in the foundation of, of the state of Israel and the creation of, of a Jewish state, you know, quote unquote, some demographic engineering had to occur. And that resulted in what Palestinians called the Nakba or quote unquote catastrophe, the raising of 540 plus villages, the removal or the uh, that demographic engineering of 750,000 Palestinians. And my father was one of them at the end of a bayonet, ended up a refugee. and. Um, Jordan, Lebanon, ultimately Australia, and that meant that I, you know, as far as Palestinians go, or you know, diaspora Palestinians, or any Palestinian really, am triple A rolled gold. You know, I still look like them, but I sound like us. I can go to the footy and play cricket and golf, and I'm, you know, among, in our community, I'm claimed to be the whitest Palestinian in Australia. You know, um, so my father came in in the fifties. Early, very early 50s, was interned for a period of time, got citizenship, met my mum here, married three kids, university, uh, nine grandchildren. Um, and, you know, I, I'll talk a little bit about my business in a second. Um, but we lost dad sort of 16 and a bit years ago. And um, we're from the two state bit of Palestine, the bit that was supposed to be after Oslo when everybody got a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and I, you know, one of, one of the things that really, I, know, I was always connected with struggle for Palestinian justice and, you know, I don't know that I'll 
ever really was uh, an activist beyond you know attending the demonstration here or there but certainly certainly spoke up but um when my father uh, what really polarized me was when my father died and i was dying and we knew he was dying he you know his dying wish was to be buried next to his mother and his mother was killed in 1948 their house demolished um and uh but we we, we know where her gravestone where her graves are and we um uh, I called the Israeli embassy and said, you know, is there a, um, what's the mechanism for me to repatriate my father's body uh, so that we can bury him in in our village? And, you know, it was a, the most abrupt uh, phone call I've ever had in my life, you know, very gruff. And then we got disconnected and I thought we'd been, you know, I thought we'd been disconnected. There you go. Called back and got through to the same guy and he said, no, no, I hung up on you. You know, Said if you don't have a, an Israeli ID or uh, Israeli issued Palestinian ID or Israeli citizenship, there, there's nothing you can do. So that really um, the injustice of that that even in in death, my father was denied the you know you know his dying wish really uh, really uh, polarized me to speak up. So from there, I uh, ended up in you know business and property and finance. And at one point, you know had a mid-sized financial advocacy firm we you know retailed financial products and did some property developing and had a restaurant and really quite entrepreneurial and um then COVID happened and so uh, i sold a whole bunch of stuff and sort of sit at home now and um do the odd thing uh, a little bit of property investing and a little bit of property development a bit of um uh, investment management of a property fund and um, a bit of golf and then october 7 happened and then the world woke up and said something happened in Palestine, Israel, as if 75 for 75 years, nothing's happened. So it's been full time since then. Yeah, that's big. And so tell me about how you got involved with APAN and, and, and what it means to be part of APAN for you. Um, well, firstly, APAN's about 13 years ago old. I think I joined, I think, six or seven years ago. Um, it's the peak representative body of the um, uh, those that are... Um, seek justice for the Palestinians, for Palestinian advocacy, or for um, for those that want to lobby for Palestine or um, educate community members. So that that's our job. It's very very similar to all of the Israel lobby type groups, um, uh, which we had their resources, uh, etc. We don't. Uh, overwhelming majority of our work's done by volunteers, but um, we've got some fantastic members, some unions, some churches, uh, some. Um, um, different um, aid organisations, different solidarity groups around Australia, and um, look, we're, we're, we've. I, I'm very proud of the work that we've been able to do in in coalescing um, so many different groups. Uh, and you know, one of the things I'm super proud of, which um, a lot of uh, other organisations perhaps can't, is you know how openly democratic we are and how consultative we are with our constituency and how representative we are of our constituency and that they all have a voice to that space. Thank you for that. Just just on the, um, you mentioned 1948 and the the establishment of Israel. Um, can you just talk, you talked a little bit about some of the things that happened um, during that time that were horrible um, and displacing for a lot of Palestinian people. What when during that 1948 period, was there not a plan for the establishment of a Palestinian and Israeli state alongside each other? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I don't think we can, it's like starting October 7. You can't start May 14 or May 15, 1948 without going back. Go, let's go back to Lawrence. 
So Lawrence tells all the Arabs, fight with us against the Ottomans, and everybody goes, yes, we did. And we won. Palestinians, Arabs at the time, um, we won. We beat the Germans and we beat the uh, uh, Ottomans, and, you know, everybody was celebrating. And at the end of World War One, the British and the French, um, Foreign Ministers Sykes and Pico decided to carve up the Arab world into little protectorates and give out, you know, little countries. What we didn't know was that Lord Balfour had promised a Jewish homeland in, in November of 1917. Lord Balfour had promised a Jewish homeland to Baron Rothschild. Uh, the Palestinians uh, believe, uh, were betrayed, and, and that promise was to establish a, a Jewish homeland in Palestine, uh, notwithstanding nothing shall be done to prejudice uh, the non-Jewish inhabitants. But me being in Australia is, is is quite prejudicial. But that happened in November of 1917. The Arabs did not know about the Balfour Declaration at that time, still fought with the Allies, and we won. And then everybody got a country. Syria got a country. Lebanon got a country. Jordan got a country. Saudi Arabia got a country. Uh, e- Egypt. Everybody got... Jordan got a country, and then Palestine got a mandate. Uh, the next thing uh, the Palestinian Arabs knew, and at that time, there were, there were, I think the population um, of, of Palestine at the time was around sort of 600,000. There were Christians, Muslims, Jews, um, uh, Samaritans, uh, Baha'i. You know, it, it's a land filled with so much history and so many different cultures and religions. Um, um, and, and Palestinians, and, and certainly myself, absolutely never deny Jewish connection to the land. Um, and then, then we saw, you know, the, the, the most egregious and, uh, uh, in a long line of, uh, anti-Semitic, uh, ever increasing anti-Semitic events, whether it had been the Crusades, whether it had been the Spanish Inquisitions, whether it had been Russian pogroms in the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, the world said, we've got to, we've got to create a, Jew- a homeland for the Jews. Now, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and the time machine, the right thing to do would have been to given to have given the Jews Germany. <laughs> well done, Hitler. This here's Israel, um, and the early Jew, Jew, uh, early Zionist movement had flirted with all sorts of different places for a Jewish homeland, whether Algeria, Catherine, even in in, in Australia, uh, Uganda, a number of different places were flirted with until it was decided that you know, based on the Jewish connection to to Palestine, that Palestine, in fact, would be the best place. And so that, you know, before the, the establishment of formal Zionism, you know, in the late 19th century, there had already been some movement of, you know, European Jews to, to the land of Palestine. Um, and then you have that period between World War One and World War Two, where, you know, um, a really militant form of Jewish nationalism uh, and Zionism was established. And that led to, you know, egregious acts of terror, you know, next... Prime Ministers of Israel that would come ahead, David Ben-Gurion, uh, Shimon Peres, were wanted criminals, wanted posters, £10,000, dead or alive, Shimon Peres, ben- David Ben-Gurion, uh, I'm not sure Ben-Gurion, excuse me, um, uh, uh, Menachem Begin. Um, and they they did everything from murdering British soldiers, booby-trapping their bodies so as to inflict more damage when they came back, when when, they, when those bodies were covered by Brits to... Um, uh, campaigns of um, harassment uh, of Palestinian Arabs, um, through to you know the 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 
Peel Commission deciding that partition might be the best thing uh, through to the UN plan uh, of partitioning uh, of Palestine. And so just to pull you back now, so just to, sort of on that, on the 48 decision, mm-hmm. my understanding was that the Jews uh, accepted um you know, that gift of statehood for Israel and independence in 48. And then following that, uh, the Palestinians and the Arab world largely rejected that and launched war against Israel. Yeah, so so let's go back a second um, before that, Mike. Um, So before the UN had that vote, before the UN had that vote, um, the population of that land, historic Palestine, if you want to call it, or river to the sea, however you want to define that geographic border, there were now one third of the population was Jewish, two thirds of the population was not Jewish. Um, uh, now, by any reckoning, irrespective of uh, historical connection to the land, uh, historical uh, and religious connection to that land, um, uh, the crimes of Western Europe and all the evil of anti-Semitism from, you know. Pontius Pilate washing his hands to 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 nineteenth to the end of World War Two. Um, th- these crimes were European crimes. Anti-Semitism for for ninety percent ninety nine percent of its history has been a European disease, a white European disease that blamed Jews for the crucifixion of Christ, uh, and, and that ended up manifesting itself in so many different horrible horrible ways, unacceptable. But I think we can we can say that that did spread to Spain and then the the Middle East um, from fifteen hundred onwards. Uh, certainly, it, it spread to Spain, but you know I, I count Spain as white, uh, Mike. I mean, I suppose you know Pablo looks a bit closer to me, but you know uh, it's it's a Christian uh, Christian manifestation of. I mean, if you're a Christian, you actually believe that Jesus had to die so that through Jesus Christ you can ascend to heaven. You know, I mean, it was supposed to happen. You know. Um, so you, you, you get to that point where um, a third party says to a first party that we're going to give half your land to a second party. Well, the first party is rightly going to be aggrieved, irrespective, irrespective of that um, uh, of, of the crimes of the past. And remembering the Palestinians didn't do the Holocaust, so we're pre pre forty eight here. Um, and then you go to the UN, which is newly formed, and there's fifty odd countries in the UN, overwhelmingly, you know former colonialists themselves, Um, and, you know, the very early uh, uh, Zionist writers, whether it be um, uh, Theodore Herzl or Ben-Gurion, et cetera, absolutely understood that, you know, Israel was a settler colonialist uh, enterprise. Um, The uh, the difference between that settler colony and that settler colonialist enterprise and Australia or New Zealand, Aotearoa, North America, et cetera, is that it happened in 1948, not in the 16s, 15s or 17s, when the complete and utter decimation of the Indigenous people occurred. Um, and so you have that situation now. Well, if you if you read any um, revisionist Israeli historian, whether it's um, Ilan Pape, who says um, the Nakba was designed and planned and planned details, every village needs to be ethnically cleansed, who the village elder is, who needs to be shot, who's been corrupted and paid for, who, where, where we're going to drive this village to, or, and, and that that was a sin, or Benny Morris, who's another Israeli uh, historian and uh, uh, who says, yeah, that all happened, but of course it had to happen. You know, there, there, there's no question of that. Well, the Palestinians uh, did resist, and that resulted in 
many different massacres and whether whether it's Derya Sin, which was the one in particular that impacted my family, uh, April 8 and 9 in 1948, where a little village in what is quote-unquote West Jerusalem that had excellent relations with its uh, neighbouring um, Jewish villages that had they had a truce between each other. Um, that village was surrounded and, you know, all sorts of egregious and horrible, everything, everything um, that um, w- all the war crimes we've heard uh, that Hamas did were done then as well, which is not to ever forgive either egregious act and uh, acts of inhumanity and war crime because it's disgusting and disturbing beyond anybody's imagining. But everything that we've heard happened then in that village and our village wasn't far from there and everybody ran. Um, and those villages were, you know, mapped. And, you know, if you're in the north of then Palestine, you know, you were surrounded from the south, east and west and village elder was killed and said, if you don't go north, everybody else is going to get killed. And then those villages were exploded. So there was nowhere to come back, Those uh, the houses, churches, mosques, et cetera. And that happened north, south, east and west. And so that demographic engineering that I spoke about earlier resulted in the loss of Palestine and 750,000 uh, Palestinian refugees, and now, you know, the largest refugee population on earth. So 1948 happens, the the UN's 50-odd countries, and overwhelmingly colonial countries, overwhelmingly white. And remember, 50-odd countries today, the UN is 190-odd countries. Um, you'd never be able to get anything through today that partitions somebody else's land for somebody else, by somebody else. Um, and, you know, Palestinians, and I'd I argue correct, uh, correctly now, said, no, we're not going to cut this land up. We can live together. We used to live together. And and my dream is that one day we might live together again. So since then, there have been multiple attempts to make peace. In your view, what do you think has sort of been some of the stumbling blocks? Because I, I know that there's been uh, Camp David, Taba, uh, multiple opportunities to no, sort no. of make resolution. Um, and still we have an ongoing conflict, which we've seen, you know, spike horribly uh, derailed many things um, since October the 7th. What do you sort of see as having gone wrong there and what were the sort of some of the barriers maybe to achieving some sort of um, peace? Um, so, Mike, I mean, I'm, I, I'm older than you and I'm old enough to remember um, Oslo. And Oslo was 1993, now 30 years ago. And and I say that actually um, here's an interesting. I just forgotten all about this. In fact, 1993. Um, if, uh, your listeners that um, might be sort of my vintage, you know, 50s and above, they'd remember um, Oslo Peace because we had the White House lawns and Bill Clinton was there and Shimon Peres, Itzhak Rabin, and and President Arafat, and they the you know handshakes. Everybody got a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and and the headlines all over the world, you know, peace in the Middle East. And in 1993, the Australian came. Uh, my father, at various stages, had held um, uh, diplomatic um, roles within the Palestine Liberation Organisation, the PLO. And we were on the front page of the Australian paper. I've got to find that paper. Um, uh, and it said, peace in the Middle East. And there was a picture of... Um, of my family, and I think Izzy Liebler, who is Mark's older brother from Ajak, and like our two families, and it says, peace in the Holy Land. 
And um, I was in my early 20s then, and I remember saying to my dad, you know, you know, how good's this? And he said, um, look, I, I, I hope it. I hope it is good and, and it'll be good for you and your grandkids beyond. But the, the chance of peace, unless we both accept that we both belong, that neither of us, neither of us has a, uh, a superior right to the land, that each of our claims and our rights is equal and that we are the same people, that if you went through history and how conquests happen and you know we'll talk about the sun god and the moon god and where some people and mike you might be moon people and you come and and the moon people have won and the moon people go who's the leader of the sun people i'm the leader we believe in the moon i believe in the sun off with his head i believe in the moon off with his head and the third guy will go i've been a moon person my whole life i can't believe those sun guys were here for this long you know if there was a way to get um uh, my DNA or, 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 or any Jewish person's DNA and be able to track them back to the Canaanites and the, the Philistines and the, the, the Hebrews and the Melmooks and everyone else, the Anatolians or the Lydians or the, you know, Endomites and the Nabataeans and every culture or, or, or person that's been, the Romans, that you might find how much bastardry blood there is in, in each of us, that until we accept that each of us is equal, each of us has a connection to that land, that none of us has a superior connection to that land, and anyone that suggests that their claim is superior and that that superiority allows them to deny the other persons, that that is wrong, that that is, that is actually racist, and, and in fact manifests itself as violence in the exclusion. Until we now, get to that point. Now, so my understanding was that sort of Tarborum, where it got to sort of uh, in the late 2000s or early 2000s, got quite close to that sort of equal position in, in terms of dividing right. up. Let, 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 let me finish this point, Mike. Sure. Until we get to the point where as human beings, we are humans first, and how we celebrate God is secondary. How we celebrate God is secondary. I mean, I went, we had our referendum a week and a bit ago, and we, I was in a line with, I don't know who was in front of me, who was behind me, you know, mm. whether Christian, Muslim, Jew, uh, whatever. We just voted, yeah? And that's that's what the world should look like. And he said, until we can get to that point, there's always going to be an injustice. And whilst, um, uh, you know, that was 30 years ago, and then within five years, Palestine was supposed to be a state, and that was 25 years ago. And since then, there's been, um, different levels of uh, negotiations, whether it was Tarba or, you know, etc. But here we are 30 years later, and uh, for whatever reason, many uh, of those peace talks broke down. And I'll tell you that from, from our perspective, um, back then in 1993, I said to my dad, I know you want everybody, that's not going to happen. We need two states. And what we need to do is like, you know, build a wall on the green line and I'm going to, you know, go and I'm going to man that wall and I'm going to point my gun east, i.e., quote unquote, protect Israel. You know, in the 22% of historic Palestine that ended up being uh, the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, I'm going to protect, I'm going to protect Israel. And because, you know, a, a generation from now, two generations now, three generations from now, I mean, the joint's tiny, Mike, you, you've been there, you know. You yeah, know, it's a third the size of Tasmania for our listeners. Yeah, it's a fifth the size of Tasmania. You know, we get to the point where, you know, from then 30 years ago to 50 years from today, you know, a confederation or whatever it might look like, we're, we're away. 
And he said, you know, you, you, you don't understand the, you're, you're, you're an Australian, you're Palestinian blood, but you don't understand the dirt, the dirt screams for all of us, cries for all of us. So the translation from Arabic doesn't really work that well. Um, and then from that point on, uh, well, certainly from 1967, but from, from that, um, Oslo period, the, the, the Israelis that were particularly and, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party, uh, a tenant of its party, is there is no such thing as a Palestinian state west of the Jordan River. So Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel, Israel's longest serving prime minister for since 1948, in his sixth or seventh term, um, uh, his political party's foundation document says there will never be a Palestinian state. Um, the the rise of the settler movement and the um, uh, whether it was Ariel Sharon or, or um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, there are now three quarters of a million Israeli settlers living in Jewish only settlements dotted throughout the West Bank. And so, what could have been should have been that two states that you know I was on the front page of the Australian mm. newspaper saying that I would defend you know as a yeah. nine twenty year old. Um, now is connected through Israel-only roads, infrastructure, et cetera, um, back to, quote-unquote, you know, Israel proper. Um, if you're in Israel and you're watching the news, there's, you know, the weather map shows the entirety of the land from the river to the sea with no differentiation of. Um, if you're using Google Maps, you can get to any of those um, settlements, illegal, under international law, illegal, according to Australia, occupied Palestine. But you can't use Google Maps to get to the Palestinian village uh, next door whose land that settlement was built on. Mm. Um, so we've got to a point where whilst the hope might have been for a generation like myself who now gone from youth to grey hair, that we would have a, a separate bit of dirt each and that, you know, God willing, tomorrow might look like uh, some sort of confederation, you know, Belgium, who, who knows what it might look like, that we would live together together. Uh, and celebrate Abraham on our different days, that's been shot up. And what we have now is a, a, a reality where there is one governing body that administers and looks after the entirety of the land. Um, and everybody is controlled by the same entity for birth registry and death registry. We all use the same currency. Uh, a Palestinian, whether they be in, in, in inside Israel proper, proper Jerusalem, the West Bank, or Gaza, licks the same postage stamp, uses the same shekel. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, Palestinians have been saying it forever, and now Israeli uh, Israel's two preeminent NGOs, B'Tselem and Yeshtin, and now Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and a slew of other organizations, charge Israel with the crime of uh, apartheid, where there's a separate yeah. system. I think I, I think I have, I want to just talk a little bit about that um, allegation of apartheid. I, I think... I think it's an enormous mistake or mischaracterization of what's happening on the ground there. I, I don't think during the apartheid you had 20% of the country uh, of, of mixed uh, race and ethnicity. I mean, we know that in Israel today um, it's only 60 70% Jewish. There's Christians, there's Arabs, there's Arab Israelis, there's Palestinians participating in society. I don't know how that's similar to the apartheid in South Africa. Could you explain how it is? <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly the same to be exactly the same the crime of apartheid as um as uh, in in the statute of the uh rome statute talks about a system that uh differentiates between two peoples 
Now, the reality, and you know, I spoke about me being a role goal triple A Palestinian. I'm Western, uh, Western born, Western uh, citizenship, so it can't be taken away from me. I sound like us, but look like them. You know, second class Palestinians or B class Palestinian, if you will, is an Israeli Arab or a Palestinian citizen of the State of Israel. But if you're a Palestinian state, uh, uh, an uh, quote unquote Israeli Arab or Palestinian Israeli, if you marry a Palestinian from the West Bank, you're not allowed to give them citizenship. Whereas, you know, uh, a, a Jew from anywhere in the world, and, you know, I one time I was interviewed by Sky News and they were talking, like, Josh Frydenberg, you know, who's my local member, uh, or was my local member, excuse me. You know, his mother came as a stateless refugee after World War II. My father came as a stateless refugee after World War II. They both lived the Australian dream, got married, citizenship, had kids, university, saw grandkids. Josh Frydenberg, whose mother came from Hungary, can go to the state of Israel and get immediate citizenship. My, I, my couldn't bury my father next to his mother. That's apartheid. There's a separate set of laws there. Now, mm, I, 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 I'd say I, that maybe that's more accurate to discrimination, which needs to be addressed, and obvious differences in how people are treated, uh, and there are human rights issues there, of course. But I don't think the the historical comparison to apartheid in South Africa is helpful or accurate in any way. I must say. So, so Mike, let's agree to differ. Sure. The historical comparisons don't have to be absolute. You don't need a whites only tap or a blacks only door for it to be textbook. Uh, uh, George Wallace, Deep South of America, or F.W. de Klerk's apartheid. But so that second class Palestinian inside uh, Israel doesn't get to, if he wants to live in a, a settlement, uh, he gets questioned by the admissions committee. And the admissions committee will ask them, you know, some questions to make sure that they are a quote unquote cultural fit to that, uh, that community. And the very first question uh, anybody get asked, generally speaking, whether it's a job interview or at the admissions committee, is um, what year did you serve? Now, Palestinian Israelis, Arab Israelis, don't serve in the IDF overwhelmingly. There are Bedouins and Druze that do. They can. Absolutely, they can. Um, why anybody would serve in an army that oppresses their brethren you know, is another that's question. That's interesting as well for me because, you know, recent polls suggest that um, – Arab Israelis who live in Israel would not want to live anywhere else. They love living in Israel and they'd never leave or want to move to Palestine, even if that was an opportunity for them. Uh, there is no question that uh, being a B-class Palestinian is better than being a C-class Palestinian. So whilst you are a B-class Palestinian in uh, Israel with that citizenship, which means you can travel to America now on a visa waiver program, it means you can have a job. It does also mean you're very careful about speaking Arabic. It does mean you give your children ambiguous names like Amir that are both Hebrew and Arabic. Um, you try and steer away from names like Hamid. And as you know, Mike, having been there, the majority of Israeli Jews are in fact Sephardic. They're not Ashkenazi. They look like me. Or um, me. Or you, yeah. Um, this is an audio podcast, so I'm not sure how many people have seen you. <laughs> well, let, let's let's try and describe our skin shades. And no, I'm just being silly. I mean, so so I've got Egyptian and Syrian heritage. Um, and what, what's your heritage, Nasser? It's pa- Palestinian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no, I think no, no. I think look, looking at we're... the screen, depending on our webcams, we're a similar tinge of sort of whitish brown. <laughs> 
We've got just enough olive not to crack. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, so my experience being in Israel, and I mean, and just just to put it to you, how I've experienced it. I'm not speaking. I don't purport to speak at all on how a Palestinian person might feel in Israel. But I've served on ambulances, the Magen David Adom um, ambulances in Israel. I've ridden with Palestinian um, people serving for MDA. I've ridden with Arab Israelis. I've spent six months studying at the Tel Aviv University, human rights and humanitarian law, in class with Palestinian people, Arab-Israeli people who, you know, it didn't seem like there was overt discrimination there. And when you move around Israel, I mean, all the signs, you hear Arabic everywhere, every signs are in Hebrew, Arabic and a bit of English. Um, It's not immediately obvious to me how that sort of situation, uh, even where you've got uh, Palestinians and Arabs uh, forming political parties in the Israeli Knesset, um, could be an apartheid state. Uh, you're 100% right. There, there is m- massive assimilation of the people. The assimilation doesn't mean that there isn't discrimination. No, of course. I, I will agree with you 100% there. Okay. Absolutely. So, can, we, so, can we, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So from that, from that point, and whether it be, you know, like in 2018, the nation state law that determines that the state of Israel is for Jewish settlement and Jewish settlement alone, you know, the Arabic is no longer an official language of the state of Israel. Anyway, so they're the B-class Palestinians. A C-class Palestinian is someone who lives in Jerusalem. They're not a citizen. They have uh, an identity card that is a different color to an Israeli Palestinian and different, again, to uh, a Jordanian. So we'll talk uh, 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 the West Bank, initially Jordanian-issued, then Israeli-issued green uh, ID. But a blue ID means you are a uh, resident of Jerusalem. You're not a citizen. Um, You have to travel on a Jordanian travel document if you've got one. Um, you have to prove at any time that uh, uh, Jerusalem is the center of your life. So what that means for a, that C-class Palestinian is that if you go to have international studies, you do a master's degree, let's say, at Sydney University, uh, and you meet somebody here and uh, you know you do your master's, do a couple of years, get married, move back, and ideally they also are a Jerusalem person or an, uh, uh, an Israeli citizen. Uh, Palestinian-Israeli citizen, you go back there, but you've spent sort of eight years out. You get a call from the Ministry of Interior, come in, prove to us that uh, Jerusalem is the centre of your life. Well, I was born in 1970, and no, no, the past 10 years, yeah, I went to Jerusalem Primary School. No, no, the last 10 years, Jerusalem High School. And then the last 10 years, well, I did a postgrad at Sydney University, worked for Telstra for, for, for five years, and now I'm back. Okay, so for the past 10 years, eight of them, you're in Australia, yeah? Okay, Jerusalem hasn't been the centre of your life for the past 10 years, residency revoked. That's a C-class Palestinian. A D-class Palestinian is a Palestinian who's was always living in the West Bank, quote-unquote, um, and that person's in their village, but they don't have citizenship of any country. If they are to travel, they travel on a Jordanian travel document. Israel gives them an ID card that is green in colour. Their number plates on their cars are different colour, They, um, but they live on their ancestral lands. An E-class Palestinian is a Palestinian who was inside Israel proper and was ethnically cleansed and ended up in the West Bank. Now, they're in a refugee camp. Now, 75 years later, as a refugee camp. They no longer look like tents, like tent cities that we imagine. Um, we've most recently seen from the Syrian refugees that fled Syria and Turkey and Jordan, but they're cinder block type things and really quite permanent. The next level of Palestinian is a Palestinian that in the in the formation of the state of Israel, in that ethnic cleansing, ended up in a collar country, quote unquote, of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, or Egypt, and somehow, whether via money or marriage, ended up with citizenship of those countries and assimilated. 
or next level down is somebody who's living in a refugee camp in one of those countries. Or, you know, the last category of Palestinian is a Palestinian that lives in Gaza. Um, and every one of those Palestinians is impacted in one way or another by an Israeli law. Mm. And that is A, the denial of the right of return. B, whether or not they can vote in an election. C, um, who controls the birth registry, death registry, egress, entry, taxation, um, uh, travel. Every level of every Palestinian's life is controlled to some degree, far less for me way out here, Mike, far less for me way out here, though it reached me when my father died and said you can't. And whether you want to call that discrimination or whether you want to call that a separate set of laws for me because my father was Muslim, as opposed to you, if your father is Jewish and you or mother is Jewish and you wanted to bury her in uh, in Jerusalem, there exists a different set of laws for you, Mike, and I, though we're Australian-born, we hmm. sound like us, we look like them, there's a separate set of laws for us. Now, yes, it's the least it's, impact for you and I, but it extrapolates all the way through. No, I, can, I can relate very much to your story. I mean, one thing I've always wanted to do is to visit my great-grandmother's home in Syria, but um, as a Jew, cannot do it. Um, same goes for Egypt. Certain parts of Egypt are extremely dangerous for Jewish people, so I'll never be able to do that either on my grandfather's side. And it's but fucking outrageous. It's, it is outrageous. No, you can swear. That's okay. No. Totally fine. Um, look, it's a good segue. You were talking about Gaza and the, the situation there. Um, obviously, been going on for a very long time, and it's been horrible um, for the people of Gaza. Um, I, I just want to get your take, and just for our audience to understand it, knowing that a lot of them would have asked me this question, don't know a lot about the Middle East, and maybe there's some confusion. Does Hamas represent or govern the people of Gaza, and are they the elected um, group in, mm. in uh, reflecting the political or uh, personal aspirations of the people of Gaza? Um, so... Look, I, I, I don't know. I'm, look, I'm, I, you know, I'm a Palestinian Australian, you know, Australian, Palestinian, whatever you want to call me. What I do know is in 2006, seven, um, there were elections held across all of the quote unquote Palestinian territories. Um, and at the time, uh, President Abbas, quote unquote, you know, um, said, I don't think we should have elections to, to the Americans. I said, no, you need to, we need to have democracy, you need to have elections. That's the right thing to do. Um, and for for whatever reason, they ran a split ticket. Either way, um, Hamas, which had been created in in the late '80s and had actually been funded by and um, pushed forward by Benjamin Netanyahu as a counter to the secular Fatah movement of Abbas and Arafat, um, had been a social service thing. You know, running daycare centres and you know uh, micro businesses for women and stuff. But it had its roots in uh, the Islamic uh muslim brotherhood uh and you know out of egypt right out of egypt that's right i'm certainly no fan of you know any sort of fundamentalism whatever it might be you know muslim christian jewish sikh hindu whatever it might be mm. um they, the elections in 2007 were were supervised by the the carter peace center uh president jimmy carter and he said they were free and fair elections now hamas ran a, a unified ticket and they won 40 percent of the popular vote no majority, but 40% of the vote. Um, and uh, were given, you know, first quote-unquote right to form a minority government. Um, immediately, and, and I say that at that point, I think at that point um, uh, the, the the Americans were like, 
we'll let you form a government, but you have to um, agree to ABCD. ABCD was Israel's not to exist. Well, everything that had been agreed in in the Oslo Accords of 93. So we're, we're 2007 now. So these are 14-year-old documents that Palestine should have been a state, you know, nine years earlier. Um, and Hamas didn't agree to that. Uh, and they went, well, if you don't agree to everything that's already been agreed on by um, Qatar, then you can... We're not going to accept you, and um, you know you're a terrorist organization. And the the Palestinians never got the got the opportunity to go labor liberal. You know Hamas Fatah, Hamas Fatah. Mm-hmm. Um, now excluded from the political process, demonized, uh, etc., and ultimately turns into where we are today. You know. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, two separate wings of Hamas. There is the civil uh, administrative part, and there is the military wing. Um, the uh, there's been a lot of work done um, between on, by academics uh, in the West that the two are very separate. Don't talk to each other. Irrespective, Australia recognises the entirety of Hamas, both civil and military wings, as uh, as designated them as a terrorist organisation. Um, and you know, uh, disgustingly, you know for. In the first instance, we're now at 17 years of cruel land, air, and sea blockade of two million people, and then you know, here we are, October seven, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, tragically, depressingly, disastrously, hurtfully, you know, 1,500 um, uh, Israelis killed. Um, now you know more than 5,000 Palestinians, and we've got this circle of violence, and got the hostages as well in there. Hostages, you know, and and um, at the same time, you've got a doubling of political prisoners by Israel. There are four thousand Palestinians who, from Gaza who had work permits. Um, most of them are now in internment camps uh, as security prisoners, um, with no connection to their family, knowing what's going on in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just a couple of days ago, Ben Gavir decided that, that they would have only one hour of electricity or water a day. Are those um, security uh, prisoners, um, re- Palestinian residents of Gaza that had work permits, so to work inside Israel proper? Um, it, you know the 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 really the the really really sad thing. The, the thing that hurts me most is that um, the framing of the conversation in Australia that from Peter Dutton or, 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 you know, down, that Palestinians are quote-unquote anti-Semitic. That, that, and, and the way that narrative might look like, that a Palestinian only cares that their jailer is their jailer, quote-unquote, because they're Jewish. As if Palestinians would be okay if, a Sikh was doing it, or a Hindu, or a Muslim was doing it. Um, the denial of the Palestinian rights to self-determination and to live in their ancestral homeland, it, it, that's the root cause of the issue. It doesn't ever forgive its manifestations ultimately into violence or terrorism. I don't accept it. I don't accept that that has to be manifested that way. So but can I just, just ask you then just no, about the, the... Let me just finish no, up. No, yeah, go, go ahead. The, the charge that the only reason Palestinians resist is because they're Jewish. That is such an egregious, egregious claim. Palestinians, 
just want to be free like everybody else. Palestinians yep. want to have rock concerts. Palestinians want to ha- send their kids to um, international education. If you're a Palestinian in Gaza, you've not had a rock concert. You've lived through six wars now as a 17-year-old. You never voted for Hamas. And here you are, your mum's dead, your house has been demolished, and your, your brother's on an operating table. But I think um, it's it's worth mentioning, you're talking about a rock concert after the atrocities that perpetrated by Hamas on people who were trying to enjoy a music festival is mm. quite um, ironic. Um, I, th- I think part of the, the challenge here is that why have a lot of these rallies been held that are around Free Palestine only days after something like this has been perpetrated upon innocent Jewish people who were trying to just enjoy their lives inside Israel proper mm-hmm. in the worst day that's happened to the Jewish people since mm-hmm. the Holocaust? Um, and, and we've heard very little in the media about condemnation of, of the acts of, of Hamas mm. from the Palestinian side. I think that's really upset a lot of the Jewish community in Australia. And I think, to, sorry, just to follow on with that, and I think, you know, uh, alongside the timing of the rallies just days after things like that have happened, um, they might not have been openly um, advocating for anti-Semitism, but some of the rhetoric and things that have been said at these rallies um, have been highly anti-Semitic. Um, and you've got people and extreme elements joining these rallies that have certainly inflamed anti-Semitism and made, you know, um, being a Jew in Australia quite unsafe for many Jewish people. First and foremost, let me make it absolutely clear. The struggle for Palestinian self-determination, liberation, is absolutely an anti-racist movement. There is no room, no room for anti-Semitism. There is no room for Islamophobia, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, uh, any sort of hate. Anyone that wants to espouse those values is not welcome in our movement uh, and needs to be uh, outed um, and thrown out and the full force of whatever laws that are available uh, must be applied to them. With respect to the, um, the that rat bag group of 15 or 20, um, I'm going to assume they're blokes. I mean, you can't really tell. I, mm. I, I don't imagine there'd be women there, but let's say, let's call them those 20 rat bag blokes or however many there was that were said F the Jews and gas the Jews. Um, I, as I understand it, um, the police have rounded many of them up now and they're in the process of uh, um, charging them, et cetera. And they should face the full, uh, uh, full, full force of the law. Um, every protest since, and certainly the two that I've been a part, three that I've been a part of in Melbourne, there has been no anti-Semitic chanting. There's been no flag burning. There's been no anti-Semitic chants. Um, there is no space for that. Now, um, as to, um, The space for us to collectively mourn, Mike, has been stripped from us as communities, both of us Australian, Mike. But the space for you and I to mourn your dead or space for me to be able to call you and go, Mike, I hope you're okay. Um, I'm so sorry for what happened. As on a human level, can I bring you some food? Um, Culturally, you know, that's the first thing we do uh, as Muslims and Jews is bring food. It's all about the food. It's all about the food. Um, that space was robbed from us almost immediately in that um, the, the public displays of what well, public elevations of the suffering, the death of, the mourning of, at the exclusion of 
And we were immediately demonized as hateful, othered. I was on an ABC radio, uh, ABC interview, and a woman asked me, uh, interviewer asked me if I understood why um, Australians empathize with Israelis. And I said to her, what do you mean? She goes, well, Australians, you know, looking at these crimes and going, this is, do you understand why, why Australians are upset? I said, but you know, I'm Australian. Do you, do you think that I'm not upset? Yeah. Hmm. I know I look like them, but I sound like us. There's, is there no space for me to collectively mourn with you, Mike? Let's use you as an example. I mean, she's not, she wasn't a Jewish woman, hmm. but is it, you've not created a space where I might say, this is outrageous. Instead, yeah. we've been excluded. And then Peter Dutton said, we've got to deport them. And then um, uh, uh, Premier Min said, we've got to ban these. Uh, well, I, th- I think countries. you and I can agree that Peter Dutton's, you know, useless uh, and awful. Uh, so let's continue on from there. <laughs> um, I will agree, definitely agree there. But, mm. you know, th- that space where we might together have been able to come together as communities and go, not in our names, not in our names. You cannot, we don't accept, you're not doing this in my name. And at the other end, I don't imagine, Mike, that you, you're going to sit in a space and think that you can reconcile. Well, I hope it's not the case, Mike. And, and, and certainly as a human being, as a human being, look, I get the desire for revenge. I mean, it's like an understandable human. It's like our worst human characteristic, yeah? But, you know, what, what we need is for our leaders to be finding a space for courage and compassion um, to call, you know, for for restraint and to make sure that the crimes that were committed against Jewish people don't escalate and become more atrocious crimes against Palestinian innocents. Yeah, and yeah, and no, no, I think I agree with you. Fabric, that. That's the moral fabric of of our of our cultures of our people. That you know, if we can allow um, conversations where a defence minister says they're human animals where a finance minister says Palestinians have got three choices. They can leave. They can stay as subjugated, non-voting residents, or they can die. That, you know, as human beings, we've got to go, no, you cannot cut off the gas, food, electricity, and and medicine to two million people for two weeks. You know, we're going to, we've got to say as human beings, Stop, not in our names, to get, we're humans. All of us are humans. We should find a space to share the pain together. The way you're elevating humanism here is really important, and I think a big takeaway from this podcast for me certainly is, is you know, all being human, just remembering the humanity of everyone as one people. I mean, ultimately, you know, we have our divisions, but we, we're all people and um, horrible things are happening on, on both sides. I just wonder, I mean, you know, Hamas obviously has a significant foothold um, in Gaza, and I think part of the challenge for Israel is trying to. Um, you talked about re- revenge. Maybe, maybe I would call it justice in a different way. Going after the Hamas leaders who are yeah. responsible for perpetrating some of these atrocities. What what would you sort of expect to happen, or how how could Israel sort of in a really balanced way? Um, achieve some semblance of justice they've got a hostage mm-hmm. situation there they want to um in one way not harm civilians unnecessarily palestinian people in gaza but at the same time they do want to try and root out hamas um it, it leaves a very difficult position and and this and by the way you, d- you did mention sort of the, the cutting off of electricity gas utilities certainly not supporting that in any way and, and as i understand it um there have been some efforts to to work towards restoring water and doing some other things i hear that 
Egypt has, um, on the other side of the blockade, opened the rougher crossing for some aid supplies and a lot of money is going in to get things going again, which is very good. But what what would what would you have Israel do in this sort of situation to to try and um, equally defend itself where you've got geopolitical uh, forces um, using this opportunity to really amass around it, um, but also to try and get the hostages back most importantly. And then the secondary or, or maybe even the primary objective would be to root out Hamas, which has arguably been responsible for much of the oppression and devastation for, for Gaza and life um, in that region too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, I, I I wish I had a magic pill. Yeah, I wish I had a magic pill, mate. Um, and and if there was, you know, uh, there had been. I mean, this is the sixth flare up in seventeen years of open air prisoners. David Cameron described Gaza, um, and we talk about Gaza. You know, we we said that you know the whole of you know Palestine, Israel, river to the sea fits into Tasmania half a dozen times. You know, Gaza fits into. Um, Canberra twice, um, that for, you know, 500 trucks of food and medicine and stuff a day used to go into Gaza. Um, since those efforts to quote unquote restore some water and stuff, there's been less than a hundred trucks. Mm-hmm. So if you had two weeks at 500 trucks a day, you're talking about 7,000 trucks. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, if there's been a hundred trucks come in, that's a 15th of what's actually required. Um, and, and that's a poof to what's required. If things were normal, they're not 60% of homes in some way impacted, uh, over a million people physically displaced, uh, in a bit of dirt that doesn't have roads or public transport or train stations or loops or any, uh, city loop or anything like that. Um, so how that might happen, I don't know, but the previous five, um, uh, uh, flare-ups, bombings uh, have ended in some sort of truce. They've held for some sort of time. Um, Gilad Shalit had been held previously, and he was, was um, uh, negotiated. His release was negotiated. So, I, I, I don't, for a moment, believe that there is not a way that diplomatically things can't work. President Biden went and visited Israel, and and my my. You know, read on that and, you know, some reading I've done of that meeting was, you know, it was after September 11, our desire for revenge was absolute. And we went into Afghanistan, we went into Iraq and, and have a look at the joint. You try and learn from us. Mm. You know, Iraq was a prosperous country, you know, and, and now who knows what it actually looks mm. like, what it is. Syria used to be a stable country and God knows what it looks like and what what has manifested itself out of our desire quote unquote for revenge look at libya today you know uh you know hamas is, is has been in power for less than 20 years um and and if there was a magic pill that got rid of hamas then you know or a button i'd push it you, you would you wouldn't need to do it Mike. i'd push it um but at the same token I, I, you know, it needs to be understood that Israel was doing this to Palestinians before Hamas. There's no Hamas in the West Bank. 250 Palestinians have been killed from the 1st of January to the 6th of October. Normal in Palestine, Israel is a Palestinian killed, you know, sort of every 18 hours. This is abnormal Palestine. And that means an adult every four minutes and a kid every 10 minutes. I mean, we've been on this podcast for an hour. That means 10 people already have been killed. Mm. You know, um, the, the, 
what, what what's what's the future? The future has to be Mike. You know, we elevate humanity to the forefront, and we say, you know, until until whether it's Hamas and and that uh, a psychosis of um, uh, super supremacist religious ideology, or whether it's a, 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 a messianic settler saying, you know, the Torah said that you go listen. Everybody's, you know, got a magic book, and you know, one of my favorite things my dad used to call. He said, "Noah's magic zoo boat." You know, the magic zoo boat. We all believe in the magic <laughs> zoo boat, yeah. Yep. Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Magic zoo boat. Maybe they're just parables. You know, maybe they're not absolutes. But if we all go, let's just put the magic zoo book, zoo boat book down, and just talk about what what we might live like, how we might live together, and what what things we need to build to see that tomorrow. Um, happen, and because it's you know it's further away today than it was on the sixth of October, unquestionably in my mind. Depressingly for me, because I know my father died had hoped that you know quite unquote he would have to give me the job, uh, and and certainly you know uh, you know in my fifties I'd hoped that my kids wouldn't have to have quite unquote the job, and that you know as we live here generally until such things happen. In, in such a beautifully social, cohesive space. I mean, you know, Jewish kids being scared to go to school or wear, wear uh, kippers or wear their uniform, it's just outrageous. It's, it, it, it's morally repugnant. But at the same token, you know, Muslim kids are getting asked, here's a story, here's one that most brings it home. In September 11 was a Friday, 12, 13, 40, September 14, 2001, uh, a cousin of mine, she's a girl, she went to a, a selective school in New South Wales. Um, on that Monday, she got asked, surrounded by her friends, and she got asked where Osama bin Laden was, as if, you know, all Muslims knew where Osama bin Laden was and that these kids were going to be able to, as 13-year-olds or something, ask this girl and get the coordinates and give them to the cops, and then that would be the end of it. Um, you know, what is so beautiful about Australia is that it said, welcome, everybody come, Um Leave your grievance at the door, and let's be part of Australia together. Mm. Uh, and and you know, it's never been harder, never been harder for a um, visibly Muslim person, and that represents itself as a girl, as a woman, catching public transport. The Islamophobia hotlines uh, can't keep up with the right now, right now, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, right now. Mm. Um, you know, kids, you know, like w- there are a few Islamic schools, but not that many. And the Islamic schools, uh, the Islamic population spread out quite far. And mm. so um, many, most uh, Australian Muslims, in fact, go to normal schools, quote unquote, mm. schools or Aussie schools, whatever you want to call them, not Islamic schools. And so um, the spaces that they occupy, the spaces they occupy are really, really Islamophobic. Mm. Uh, and, and that's that. Can't be the Australia. Well, you know, I, I went to Cheltenham Primary School and Beaumaris High and Mentone Grammar and Melbourne High. And, you know, I was the only Muslim and the only, you know, it was Matthew, Paul, Luke, Nasser, <laughs> Stephen, John. <laughs> and I remember my divinity teacher saying, you know, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm Palestinian. And I said, you know, that's where Jesus is from. And my dad used to teach us, you know, earlier. I said, you know, Matthew, Paul, Michael, uh, uh, Peter, Luke, they're all names of the disciples, but they're not Aramaic or Arabic or Hebrew names. <laughs> they're anglicized names. Those guys, <laughs> look, those guys looked like me. They didn't look like you. 
NASA, moving forward, I mean, I think we've already covered the sort of media um, and the way that they've sort of butchered all of this for everyone. Um, where do you get your news from? Because I think people are finding it incredibly hard to separate the um, – the, the the truth from the noise if, if there is an objective truth I mean, I mean you know we only have to look at things like the other day just the uh the um you know straight away the reports of the attack on the hospital uh in the gaza strip uh being an israeli um uh, rocket deliberately targeting a hospital which is just outrageous allegation and you know completely against how um you know the, the laws of war operate for modern democracies but you know it turned out to be a every news outlet in the land went to story with it with a town including the new york times saying that israel deliberately bombed a hospital and killed hundreds of people i think it later turned out to be that it was um a different uh terror cell within the gaza strip had um fired a homemade rocket and it unfortunately landed in a car park and killed many people and that's just one example of um how the media is looking to i think weaponize uh groups against each other rather than to give a objective picture of what's happening on the ground so we can sort of follow what's happening and sort of hopefully you know, see where we are and moving towards some sort of resolution. How do you kind of separate the forest from the trees and how do you try to sort of, you know, first of all, a take on the media's role in all of this and second, how are you kind of getting your best information on what's unfolding over there? Um, so a couple of things. I mean, uh, you know, I, there, there's there's tons of um, uh, quote-unquote Palestinian uh, media that is in English, and that could be the Palestine Chronicle, the Electronic Intifada. There's many places for people to get uh, information, and I, I think it's important that we we talk about the in fact quote unquote disinformation. Like, um, and if you remember, you know, first Biden said he saw pictures of the babies, and uh, um, Dutton and we both agree that he's not representative of either of us, and in fact is you know hurting the social cohesion of this country by creating uh making this such a divisive uh issue that um he spoke like about, he did with the voice yeah, as well like he did with the voice as well um when he spoke about 40 babies into uh in in parliament into hansard um and that's been uh disproved not to say that there hasn't been egregious crimes and other horrible stuff you know crimes of war and those people you know should be to the hague or whatever might um might uh might 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 befall them you know and ultimately as a person of faith god's judgment um but you know you come to um what the media's role in this and and you let's let's use the hospital as an example the claim is today that it's palestinian islamic jihad misfired rocket uh, uh, you know palestinians will tell you based on our history quote unquote our history palestinian history israel has done stuff accidentally uh and then said wasn't us and then a year later said sorry two years later said sorry mm -hmm. and that can go back to muhammad al-dura in 2000 uh and people can google that picture of a father carrying with his son he gets shot french tv camera shoots it goes to thing uh an israeli uh frenchman sues them loses proved that it was israeli guns the bucket boys in 2016 running along a beach uh, an israeli u-boat shot a shell and killed them uh, the Kana massacre in southern Lebanon. Um, Israel, we didn't do it. It was a UN facility, GPS units with the Israeli army. Um, a year later, yeah, it was us. Shirin Abu Akhla, Palestinian uh, uh, American journalist, wearing a press vest and a, a helmet. Uh, forensic architecture did the uh, analysis. It shows the seven bullets were shot head high, directly at her position. 
for a year, Israel said they didn't do it. In the end, they go, yeah, it was our guy. We're sorry. Um, the sort of, uh, the level of the explosion, we talk about, there's been thousands of rockets. I think the last report I said, I heard was 7,000 Hamas rockets have been fired into Israel. That's the, the, I don't, I mean, I've not seen the sort of devastation, um, and, and loss of life, uh, inside Israel that would mean that, uh, any of the Palestinian, uh, groups had this level of, explosive power ordinance, but irrespective of whomever did it, the reality is Gaza is occupied under international law. The responsibility of an occupied people sits with its occupier. Israel occupies Gaza. This how is it occupied, uh, NASA? How is it occupied? Yeah, I mean, didn't Israel withdraw in 2005 from Gaza? Yeah, it, 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 you know, Israel withdrew all of its human beings from um, Gaza in 2005. And um, I'd like to, um, I'd like to not occupy Gaza. Uh, uh, I'd like to not occupy a bank the way Israel doesn't occupy Gaza. Uh, whilst Israel is not there, it still maintains the birth registry, death registry, entry and exit food, water, building materials, every level of anything that goes in there has to go through Israel. The 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 um COAT, which is the military uh uh COAT, the military uh body responsible for Israel, pre-October 7, used to calculate the daily calorific intake of food required and only let that many calories in that didn't allow for mass starvation. That's full, one side, but isn't uh, Egypt on the other side uh, also occupying Gaza then? Uh, Israel is complicit in the occupation of Gaza, absolutely. Through Egypt? Through the Rafah border. And just yesterday, oh. and, and today today uh, is uh, Tuesday, so I think we're talking Sunday, Israel has bombed the, the Rafah border area four times since October 7, and yesterday bombed the Egyptian side and said, sorry, we were trying to bomb on this side of the Rafah border. I mean, for me, it seems interesting that most of the conversation about the occupation talks about Israel occupying a area that it removed itself from in 2006, but then not many people talk about Egypt having the other blockade or side of the equation. So couldn't Egypt, uh, as a friend of the Gazans or former uh, occupiers of that territory, simply open their borders to allow a lot of that aid in or have a bit more... Um, I suppose, influence over that area, support the Palestinians? Uh, you know, Mike, you would like to think so. Um, number one, Camp David in 1977, when Israel made peace with Egypt, um, uh, uh, the, part of the deal was uh, aid. So the largest recipient of foreign aid in the world from the United States is Israel, which is 3 to $4 billion a year. The second largest recipient is Egypt. Egypt gets half of what Israel gets. Part of getting half of what Israel gets is you'll do what uh, Israel needs. So Egypt is not allowed to open the Rafah border without Israel's approval. Okay. Yep. That's no. worth knowing. Yeah. So um, there, there, if you have a look at the pictures on the Rafah border, and I've certainly been watching Arabic media, there are truck drivers there that are camped and they're like, they've bought their own food. I'm waiting. I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what my government says. I'm get, I'm going to, as soon as I open that door, I'm taking aid in. You know, self-motivated human individuals, aside from UN convoys and stuff, the people of the Arab world remain with the people of the of Palestine. And the greatest uh, exemplar of that was the World Cup in Qatar. So whenever uh, an Arab team, you know, Morocco or 
um, Qatar, etc., was playing, the overwhelming number of Palestinian flags in the stadium was representative of the fact that the Arab world, not our despotic rulers, um, our kings that were chosen by uh, colonialists after World War One to, to, you know, for these artificially made countries, this concept of nation states that existed didn't exist before, um, before colonialism. Uh, that they are not representative of you know the, the 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 masses of the humans, and if you go anywhere, I mean, you know, I, I, we've got a dear old Jewish friend. He, he's long since passed, um, and and he was an Israeli, and and um, uh, but moved to then Palestine before the Holocaust and the horrors, um, and you know loved Palestinian food. And Mike, you you all got your Egyptian heritage. You know, our food's better than European food. <laughs> oh, God, without question, our food's better. Yeah, that and should be the, that should be the rally call for any further peace negotiations. I feel our, our food's better. You know, I'm going to take hummus and falafel over. You know, what's that cabbage soup and um, the chicken stuff? You know? <laughs> I, I think my favourite might be jachnun. Have you had that one before? It mm. Probably, it's that breakfast. Uh, it could, uh, I might be wrong. It maybe isn't a Palestinian dish, but it's a one of it's my Levantine or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and and you know, so he would come to our house, and and um, you know, my dad spoke Hebrew. You know, I mean, like he was born in the twenties. You know, it was normal. You'd learn Hebrew, Arabic, and English. That's what you did in Jerusalem. Um, and they would speak and dream about, and like you know, he'd come for the stories, and my dad and he would share, you know, sweet mint tea. But it was always about waiting for mum to finish cooking. <laughs> um, I, 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 it just hurts so much that that we can't eat together. Hmm. That that you know that there's this division, and you know what? So I it, can I can I just I don't want to yeah 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 the guys sorry, are go sorry sorry Mike. go ahead. You know, if 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 I move into your house and occupy your house with you and with my family, and then I go, well, I'm going to leave the occupation, and I leave your house, and I leave you in your house, but I'm sitting around the whole house, and you're not allowed out of your house block, and I throw shopping at the front door every day and, you know, turn on the power every day or turn off the power or turn off the electricity, I might not be in there, but the fact that you're not free means you're occupied. And the reality of occupation, even if I'm not killing you, to maintain that level of control over you inside your house block, even though I'm not in there anymore, that's violent. That's Do you violent. Think that's what Israel seven. wants, though. I don't think that's what Israel wants. I hope it's not what Israel wants. I mean, to, if if that's what you want, I mean, that's. I don't know how we undo that level of. No, I I really don't think that Israel wants that. I, I suppose that's the point I was making is that. I don't know why it's become the case. Uh, I would say that it's probably something to do with Hamas um, having a lot of control and sending a lot of rockets over the border and causing a lot of terror Mike, to Israel. There's no Hamas. But, Mike, there's no Hamas in the West Bank. And uh, it's, I thought you were talking about Gaza. Well, we're talking about Gaza, but yep. in, in the West Bank where there is no Hamas, where um, President Abbas is fully compliant with everything Israel needs, mm. heads up the Palestinian Authority. There are like 50,000, you know, the biggest mm. employer in the West Bank is the Palestinian Security Forces, mm. and their job is to secure Israel from Palestinians. There is no Hamas there, but there still is an occupation. But is there, are you think you're saying? I mean, what I'm trying to gather is why do you think that Israel wants to assert control over the West Bank for any reason other than to protect itself? 
Like, well, what, what what would be the reason for Israel wanting to have any control over the West Bank? I mean, it, to me, it just doesn't make any real sense. And and I, I hope, I, I guess what I'm leading to is I hope that we can get to a place where we can move as swiftly as possible towards a two-state solution. My, my concern is very much that Israel has got an increasingly right-wing government, which I think is terrible for everyone. I think uh, we've got a lot of uh, forces geopolitical around the world who are baying for blood and actually, you know, enjoying this conflict as a means to advance their own geopolitical means. And I think it's incredibly hard with the divided uh, sort of leadership or governance of, you know, Gaza and the West Bank um, for just say there was an amenable, reasonable Israeli government in place to sort of uh, have that opportunity to take steps towards peace. I guess where I'm going is what what should we do as Australians who are passionate about trying to foster a more peaceful um, environment and future Mm -hmm. for um, Israel and and Palestine if anything at all is possible for us and the second part is you know what what should we encourage both the israelis and palestinians to do moving forward to to sort of get there if we can do anything so i i think you hit it on the head in the first instance mike the reality of this current knesset is more right-wing and arguably fascist i mean ben gavir has openly said i'm a fascist and a homophobe you know that's on record and smotrich and so many other people that we've got this messianic Knesset and a, and a right-wing uh, uh, government now that is pales into insignificance as to the rest of, of governments, and that's no easy task. That they don't see that there's any such thing as a Palestinian. You're just Jordanians. You came here. This land had no people in it. It was a, a people without land for a land without people. You know that 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 uh, propaganda line, as if human beings didn't exist there for thousands and thousands of years beforehand, and that there wasn't Jewish connection, Islamic connection, Christian connection, Roman connection, whatever. Um, that, you know, we have a look at, you know, what was historic in 1993, what was uh, PLO renouncing violence, recognising the state of Israel, uh, the White House lawns handshake, and then Rabin gets murdered because of, um, and I'll say it, absolutely a whip-up of that crazy messianic stuff by Benjamin Netanyahu, mm. by Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, that Yitzhak Rabin, who extended his hands, and and we should say Rabin had a lot of Palestinian blood on his hands during the first intifada. Um, uh, stone throwers, the Palestinians who were throwing stones at Israeli soldiers, his command to them was to break bones. Palestinian arms were bent backwards and elbows snapped. That was we're not going to put you in prison. We just break their arms so they can't throw stones. Um, that that a guy like that then extends his hands because that's what happens. You make peace with your enemies. You don't make peace with your friends. Yeah, we don't that's need to make quote. peace. We don't need to make we don't need to make peace. You and I. I mean, we're like Aussies, and you know, I hope you can tell I'm a reasonable human being and not some devil. Uh, well, the quote the quote wouldn't apply to us because we're definitely not starting out as enemies, so we're, we're probably closer to friends than anything already. But neither of us shared shared heritage. Yeah, neither of us have got horns or devils. You know, we accept each other's humanity and right to live. Oh, and- look, a lot of people say that my people have horns, so I might be hiding them under this headset. But <laughs> <laughs> let's go on. No, no, for anyone that hasn't seen Mike, there is no horns. <laughs> um, uh, that that you go go from that point and you go, what do we need to do? What, what needs to happen is, um, you know, whether whether it's um, a, a demand by the world to say, hey, in the first instance, stop the war on Gaza. You know, this is uh, what has started out, quote-unquote, as Israel-Hamas, now with over 5,000 civilians dead. 
with a million people displaced, with you know fifty thousand pregnant women and fi- over five thousand going to give birth in the next three or four days, a, a, a hundred kids in human cribs that don't have power, they're going to die now. Um, uh, Palestinians on dialysis, the dialysis machines aren't working. Um, uh, the water table in Gaza is below the Mediterranean Sea because the Israeli settlements around Gaza have pumped the aquifer down to that level. That the Palestinians are drinking seawater now for hydration, and we know what that does to kidneys and stuff like that. That as a as a world community, this is an inflection point for us. Who, when we said never again, has to be never again for anyone. Mm. We we don't need to wait one month, two months, three months, six months to see ten thousand, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, whatever dead. And as if, God forbid, we God willing, magic button Hamas no longer exists. What happens afterwards? You know, what what a kid whose dad and brother, whatever died, he doesn't suddenly say kumbaya. We we need a, a huge effort, a huge effort from the world to say our moral compass needs to be involved here. And if you have a look at, you know, Germany post-World War II, Japan post-World War II, you know. Um, we, the world can get better. There is opportunities for restorative justice for both peoples, but it needs a will and a demand. It can't be all the way with LBJ. Israel's got a right to defend itself. Countries exist, and, and rights to defend themselves are academic, but humans have right to life, and that has to be first and foremost. Um, and what does that look like? What do we need to do? Mike, there are smarter people than me that you know, can put together what it should look like. But what should happen is in, in, in our space here is we need to absolutely, absolutely condemn anti-Semitism. We need to say to Minz, the Premier of New South Wales and his police minister that said his uh, Jewish people or people who want to come out and have show solidarity with the Jews that were killed by Hamas, massacred by Hamas, that those people, we will find a way to protect you. Not, you're not going to be safe, stay at home. Yeah. Yep. Not. That is outrageous. And, and if 15, 20 people, 50, 100 people, those neo-Nazis, a week ago, there were some neo-Nazis in Melbourne um, at 2 o'clock in the morning doing high Hitler. Why didn't we go arrest them? Hmm. How, how did yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that was outrageous. Actually, my cousin was also on the tram uh, when a full um, gang of similar neo-Nazis were asking people whether they were Jewish and to prove that they weren't. Um, and, and just, yeah, what the state the of The know who these people are. Go yeah. get them. The, I mean, the police really need to activate and get serious about this because it's been an absolutely shambolic disgrace how they've handled it so far. No person of any race, ethnicity, background or colour should ever fear for their safety and well-being in this country and have the police tell them to stay home rather than uh-huh. just live their life. Outrageous. I don't agree. I don't agree mm. with the lighting up of the opera house. But that's my opinion and I've got a right to do that. But the fact that it was lit up... And then the premier and the policeman has to say, stay home because you're not going to be safe. A, outrageous. But B, the reverse of that is you're telegraphing to the entire country that you won't be safe because those crazy Muslims, those crazy Palestinians will are not Australian. They're not like you and I. They may do something violent. That, that is the message that has been sent to our community. It's been fostered by Peter Dutton. And, uh, you know, so many other our politicians at, a, a, at a, a state and federal level, I don't know what's happening in local councils, but it's it's said you're not going to be safe because of them. And what this country needs is leadership. And that leadership says we are all Australian, irrespective of your faith, colour, creed, ancestry or where you came from, 
together we can live together as human beings and we can be the exemplar for for the world but also we might be the exemplar for for Palestine Israel and that 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 tomorrow that we dream about that we might Mike you and I drive from uh Jerusalem to Aleppo or Jerusalem to Alexandria or from uh, uh Baghdad to 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 uh, Petra you know the the beauty that was the birthplace of civilization um what needs to happen is for all of peoples for all of us to have a, a common humanity the concept that you can bomb your way to peace you know it was tried in vietnam afghanistan and iraq it don't work no well, you do is spend money and, ki- and and lose your own kids but also kill other people's kids i think it's true i think it the violence needs to stop and i think it would be good if we could both sort of say that we think a return of the hostages would be really important as well. I think they're, you know, innocent civilians, 200 plus, still in Gazan territory. I mean, these are people's family members, children, Holocaust survivors. Um, it's a disgrace. So I think, yeah, end the violence, return the hostages. Let's all get behind the common humanity and sort of see things move forward in a positive direction. There is no question. We we, we want every hostage released and the same token same time like we want every palestinian released yeah yeah absolutely um, the palestinians that are held that you know the israeli population the of israeli jails since october 7 has doubled over ten thousand people yeah two thousand of them held in administrative detention which is you don't know the charge your lawyer doesn't know the charge but an israeli uh security force person said you're a risk and we've got to keep you for six months till we work out exactly what level of risk Weren't no we- justification no justification. What we need is a space where we go, we're all human beings, first and foremost. Now, there are some rat bags and we need to find them and, and deal with them. And 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 those rat bags, Mike, don't just exist in one side. They don't oh, just no. exist in one side. Absolutely. Rat bags um, everywhere. Yeah. And and now I'm talking specifically in Palestine, Israel. And whilst Israel might be a country and uh, uh, outwardly a democracy, a flawed democracy, I, I would contend. It Absolutely. Does, it does not states don't have the right to perpetuate a genocide and i'm no international lawyer but and 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 if international law does not say in the pursuit of self-defense it's not okay to starve uh dehydrate deny medicine food etc to two million people whilst you're going after a terrorist organization then international law needs to be rewritten because it's not right and human beings not you or i mike that have a you know a vested interest a greater understanding of or you know our political class that's only interested in power but human beings just normal human beings know it's not right it's not right nasa powerful and to what's been a fantastic conversation thank you so much for being with me um how can people connect with you and learn a bit more about apan and your important work yeah, so people visit our website, APAN, the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, apan.org.au, apan.org.au. Um, you can get on there and um, support us with a donation, join as a member, sign up to our newsletter, um, and, and we welcome anyone. And our, our church is a broad church. We have uh, Jewish groups, Christian groups, Muslim groups. We've got some secularists. And can I tell you, we've also, we've also, um, had some horrible racists that I didn't know we had amongst our uh, crew. Um, we openly supported the Yes campaign, uh, Mike. Um, we felt it was important for our, our, ourselves as a non-government organisation to say that we believed that uh, Indigenous First Nations people deserved a voice. 
that we had a, a number of people write to us uh, and say that it was unacceptable and you know we gave them back every cent they've ever given us there is no room there is no room in our movement for any racism whatever it might however it might manifest itself from anti-semitism islamophobia homophobia sexism misogyny everyone there is no room for hate i dream of a world that i can give my children or leave to my children where we are as martin luther king judged by the content of my character not the color of my skin that's so well said thank you for being with me um hang on the line and we'll have a quick debrief good man If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.